Directing Interview is sponsored by the Alabama Institute for Deaf and Blind, transforming the lives of Alabamians who are deaf, blind, and multi-disabled. You know, there must be something in the water in Florence, Alabama. For decades, the Shoals region has attracted some of the best artists, musicians, and chefs in the world, despite being an hour drive from the closest interstate. And it's also home to Billy Reed, one of the top fashion designers anywhere. No, really. He's been named GQ's Designer of the Year, and his clothes have been worn by everyone from James Bond to the Avengers. Oh, and each year, he also throws one of the South's coolest parties. I'm John Hammontree, and this is The Reckon Interview. Today, we're chatting with Billy Reed about how his Southern roots influence his timeless style. We'll also discuss how he wrestles with managing a luxury brand in one of the country's poorest states, and how he sells the South to his customers. So kick back and listen for a little while, folks. This is The Reckon Interview. Well, today I'm chatting with Billy Reed, a internationally recognized designer who is based here in Florence, Alabama. Billy, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So you grew up in, actually, I want to ask if I, how to pronounce this before I say it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's pronounced A-meat. A-meat. If you okay. live there, it's pronounced A-meat, or a lot of folks would call it A-meat, okay. which is really probably the phonetic, phonetically correct uh, answer. But some folks will even call it um, A-mit. A-mit. Okay. So you get all three. Right, you get that Cajun accent. You get a there, lot you never going know on. on so, but yeah. A-meat is the correct answer. But if you live there, it's A-meat. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, so you grew up in A-meat, Louisiana. Yeah, that's right. And uh, your mother owned a woman's boutique in your grandmother's home. Is that right? She did. My She... Um, took my grandmother's home and, um, you know, refurbished it into her shop. So, so did you it, know at a young age that you wanted to be a designer? I did not. Okay. No, I did. <laughs> I liked clothes, um, you know, and so I was always exposed to it through her, but I actually started school as a, as a PE major. I wanted to be oh, really? a coach. So I started there and I flunked out as a PE major, okay. which is kind of hard to do. Where was that? This was at Southeastern Louisiana okay. in, in uh, Hammond, Louisiana. Got it. A little too close to home, probably too many bad influences, but, um, it happens. Yeah. I had, I remember coming home with the grades and, um, I had like good, terrible, you know, like a one, two grade point average. And, could basically flunking out. You're not going back to school. We're not, pay, we're not paying right. for this. Yeah. <laughs> What's kind of the answer? Um, and my dad looked at the grades. He goes, how did you get an A in history and an F in social dance? <laughs> so I did that happen? Because well, you're out dancing every night. How the hell did you get it? I don't understand this. And you're very social. Yeah. What's up with that? So thank goodness things turned around and, you know, I made it out of a... Those, those times and ended up moving to Texas and going to school at Art Institute of Dallas studying fashion design and you know life changed from that point so from that point on you went to Saks Fifth Avenue? I, yeah that, I started yeah. working at Saks while in school so okay. I worked full time went to school full time which kind of was good it kept me out of trouble and kept me occupied and it was just also just a tremendous learning ground on so many levels they had a regional office there at the time and had just great mentorship you know with you know people that have been in the industry for years and years and years so and also just a great exposure to luxury mm-hmm. you know and service and customer interaction and then learned a ton about tailored clothing 
from mm-hmm. guys that had been doing it forever. I mean, that was a big part of where I was working was in the tailored clothing and the made to measure part of their business. So, you know, I was just a sponge. Was your mother's boutique, was that a luxury boutique? Or? It, she carried a little bit of everything. I'd say this was, you know, her store was thriving back in the 70s and, and 80s. So a big part of what she had was this unbelievable assortment of designer denim. Okay. You know, from yeah. These were the days of Gloria Vanderbilt uh-huh. and uh, Sergio Valente, Calvin Klein. I mean, she had sold tons of Calvin Klein jeans, Gerbeau. So that was a big sort of baseline for her and then she carried all different kind of collections from you know at various price points she had a pretty a very diverse customer mix she was a great marketer you know a meet is a small town of maybe 3,500 people it was at the time i think it's grown somewhat after katrina because sure. a lot of we got a lot of folks that came from new orleans that moved there but i remember back in those days there were traveling salesmen so you would they would yeah, they would come to your to the store and they would show their collection in the shop. And I remember one time she had a guy down for a trunk show just for rabbit coats. This was back in the early '80s. Rabbit coats were all the rage, and she had an event in her store. She sold 180 rabbit coats wow. in Amite, Louisiana. You know, it's like. At, yeah, at, I, that seems. Yeah, I, I, I just but I guess she was I wouldn't fanta- picture what I presume to be rural Louisiana as being a place for high fashion. Yeah, so pretty much a rural, you know, yeah. a, a, I'd say a rural town for the most part. I mean, mm-hmm. we had a small little downtown, you know, of course, like most Southern towns, you know, split between the railroad track and, mm-hmm. you know, the, your sort of businesses kind of are based around the small town there. And she, um, anyway, people would come to the store to hang out. I always, I always use this as sort of a description, but it, it was like steel magnolia set in a clothing store. That's the way (laughs) I always describe it. Cause there were sort of these regular women that stopped by almost on the daily. They would sit around and drink coffee and, you know, she would, she had the kitchen in the back of the shop. She would cook for them. And it was just, to me, it was one of the biggest influences just in the fact that when we began think about opening stores i said man i just want the store to sort of have that vibe to it where people just want to come and just hang out you know if they shop fantastic if they Mm -hmm. buy something that's great but for the most part you just want to come in and go man i want to go back to that place i really enjoyed what's happening there so she was very good at that uh after your time in texas with sex fifth avenue you moved out to LA, is that right? I did, yeah. yeah. You were working with Reebok? What were you doing with I them? Did. Uh, I moved to Los Angeles with a friend of mine. We thought we wanted to be actors, so we moved out there with no jobs. Oh, really? So, <laughs> as actors, we began waiting tables. Yeah. And um, he stuck with it for a little while. I did it for three days and said, I'm out. I got to do something else. I don't, I didn't enjoy it very much. Yeah. You're going to clothe actors I, instead. Yeah. I went to the um, downtown to the Los Angeles Apparel Mart and just, started walking around see if anybody was hiring and hmm. at the i took a job with wrangler okay as a sales trainee working for wrangler um and i got the job they started sending me to like all these feed stores in rural california so mm-hmm. it was kind of a, a nice switch but it, it worked and i was there a month because reebok was across the hall and okay. like we got friendly and they were just starting this was yeah. in the early days of their apparel division and they 
we're looking for a sales rep. So it was immediate kind of a step up and a promotion. I was like, and I wanted to work for this young company. And so it was great. So I, I got the job with Reebok and started with them in sales. Okay. And I traveled a five state territory of California, Arizona, Nevada, Hawaii, and Guam. Wow. That's fun. And that was my job was to, and I was a traveling salesman for Reebok, yeah. kind of pioneering their um, How do you leap well, from the sales side into the design side? Uh, Obviously, you had the degree in it. But. Reebok had a, a, a satellite office in Los Angeles that dealt with celebrity placement. They dealt with special projects. And they had the need for – they were working with a project for Amnesty International back then, which was this tour, big tour that involved Peter Gabriel and tons of folks back then trying to um, think of all the bands that were involved. Anyway, there was a merchandising component to it. And I got involved with that through that, through the office and we did a really, did a good job with it. And then I went and moved to New York. Mm -hmm. I started handling special projects for them for the Foot Locker account. Mm -hmm. And then I got moved to the corporate office to help them launch their Greg Norman golf division okay, for them yeah, and I yeah. helped them at the early stages of that so I was there for six years and got to travel all over the world and you know meet tons of great contacts and manufacturing contacts and just learn a ton and yeah so it was at what fantastic point did you decide to uh, branch out and launch your own line 1995 I started doing consulting work for different people one of my first customer clients were was Reebok okay. which was I left and kept them as a client I did freelance work for Reebok Neiman Marcus Fruit of the Loom mm -hmm. PGA Tour all you know just a, had a good group of clients and and good manufacturing contacts and it got to the point I was just you know, hey, I think I'd like to do do this. Yeah. It wasn't like some lifelong dream. You sure. know, it's like, yeah. hey, I'm gonna go out and be a fashion designer and do this. It wasn't that's not how it happened. It it more really just kind of evolved and finally said, Hey, you know, I'd go out shopping. And I was like, Man, I, I don't like the way these shirts fit and I I don't yeah, there were details that I didn't like about things. I was like, Man, I wish I could just make this myself and yeah. that's how it started. I started went to Italy, had a bunch of sketches and you know, ideas, put a collection together and I got lucky, you know, and, and so that was, that was in 19, that was in, 19, that was year, in right? 1998 yeah. and it was under the name William Reed at so the why time. So why William? Were you going by Billy at the time? <laughs> no, I think it sounded, I don't know why at the time it sounded good and, and no, no one ever called me William, yeah. you know, except, except maybe my mom when, I, <laughs> when she was pissed off or something. So, but it worked out, you know, I, um, the first season out, I opened two two accounts, and I was like, "Well, this that's not very good. Two people are going to sell this. I don't know where we're going." So you were um, selling two stores. We were selling two stores. We yeah. Did not have retail stores at the yeah. time. But the two stores were Stanley Korshak and Fred Siegel in Los Angeles. So it's two really good stores. I really felt like, "Hey, we can somehow make it work here. It can. We can spread it." Mm -hmm. And fortunately, it did spread. We did a super cool marketing piece that we sent to uh, like this leather bound book. We sent to a hundred people, and we got a great response. The next season, we opened thirty seven accounts. Wow. So we went from two, and they were the some of the best stores you know that we could possibly work with. And so we we're able to build sort of a luxury brand through you know through the great retailers. You know, sort of like guilty by association. It's like okay, if you're in Barney's, well, that's a good sign. Mm -hmm. Maybe this person wants you down the road. So mm -hmm. we were able to take that, eventually launch into women's. 
get involved in New York Fashion Week. I started the company in Texas because mm-hmm. we were living in Texas. And at the time I had two kids and we ended up moving the company to New York, but my family stayed in Texas. So I, I commuted every week. Oh, wow. It had to be tough. Did that for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. did that for three years. Um, still do a lot of commuting, but it's a lot less than that. Yeah, so launched women, started doing fashion shows. In 2001, we won a really great award from the CFDA for Best New Menswear Collection. And that's the Council of Fashion Designers. Of America, uh, yeah. Of America. So that way it's, it's, it's like the Oscars of fashion. It's like, that's probably, that's, yes. So we okay. were very fortunate yeah. to win this sort of new designer category. Well, th- that sort of would have, my next show, which would have been kind of the breakout show from that, was on September 10th, mm-hmm. day before the terrorist attacks. So um, in my office was just right down the street. I was in Chelsea at the time. I was living probably 20 blocks in the World Trade Center. My apartment was in New York. So just the day before, you think, you know, uh, it's about to take off. Yeah, you kind of, your appointments for selling are set up like after the show. So, you know, we're we're booked solid for two weeks and, you know, we, that was it. No one, you know, it was everything kind of, there was nobody coming to appointments. New York was shut down. My partner at the time was also in the dot com business. That mm-hmm. bubble yeah. was bursting. So yeah. just a, a, a the perfect storm, and it just buried us. So, and then the commuting to New York. So, my wife was from Florence, Alabama. We loved Florence. I loved coming here, and I was. We had a choice of like, are we going to move to New York City? Going to move to Connecticut? We're going to do move to Bucks County, or we're going to move to. Where else? Yeah. And I said, let's move to Florence. I said, if I'm going to travel, at least you're, you can be around family. We have a good support system and we'll make it work from there. Did you at any point consider, I mean, shuttering the label? Obviously you renamed well, we did. it. I did have to shut that label. You did. Okay. I did. We shuttered it uh, and times got really tough. Yeah. I mean, really lean because, um, were you designing for other people at that time or I mean, started picking up new I started going back to freelance again, you know, and, um, you know, picked up whatever I could here and there doing odd jobs, just trying to stay, trying to stay relevant, trying to stay afloat. And it took about three years, I guess, before you decided to launch another. Yes. I was approached by some friends and with an idea of opening stores. Uh They had an idea of opening stores and calling it Hampton Reese was, and I was met with them and, why you know, was it Hampton Reese? I didn't. It was, it was like some name they had come up with. Just made but it up. It's it like wasn't we named like what anybody. you're about. You know, we like what you do. We like your clothes. We like the vibe. But we would, um, you know, we we're thinking about calling Hampton Reese. What do you think about that? And I'm like, Meh. I said, you know, I've always. I think. I think it could relaunch. I think really there was enough momentum behind what was going on. I said everybody seemed to like what we were doing. So I just hit some hard times, and you know, at an odd timing. I said, I'd like to relaunch it, but call it Billy Reed. I said, whatever we do, I want it to be real. I want to do it. I want to do it my way. I want to do yeah. it with something that's that's tangible, something that I can live. It would have been hard to live with. Like I said, no one's called me William. And so you, right. so it's, it's, it's it just, more if, if it just seemed more approachable in a lot of ways and, yeah. and, and real, I think. I was searching for that after going through something so disruptive and just devastating as, as what we went through, it definitely focused me on like, you need to do it your way because 
do it the way you want to do it. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, that's all you got. Well, uh, you know, if you're, if you're doing it for some somebody else, if I'm doing it because Barney's wanted this piece or Saks wanted it this way, that works for a little while, but it's not sustainable over a long period of time. You have to have sort of a vision and a core foundation of what that's about. So when you are selling to retail, yeah, they sometimes get to, I guess, influence the design. Is that? Oh is yeah. That, well, yeah. they're definitely, yeah. you know, and, and there's a lot of, they buy there's they a want. lot of good back and forth. And I'm not saying that's not a bad thing. You want that sure. feedback and you're certainly there. You want to sell clothes. So, yeah. but there's also sort of a, baseline of what it's about you can't just become somebody else because hey they're selling a lot of versace so right. give me some you know i need these printed silk shirts from you for it's like well that's not really what it, that's not what you do yeah but you get those types of requests just because they're selling silk print shirts you know it's like well that's not really the vibe i'm looking for but what is the vibe that you're looking for? I, I mean i think i i really internalize a lot of it i'd look at it personally and go would i wear that is that something i want to wear and it's really kind of an internal gauge. It's not a, I, I go with what I like. And I think that's. What, where is, would you say, I mean, what are the roots of, of that aesthetic? I mean, obviously you grew up in Louisiana, yeah. so some Southern influences. Oh yeah. I mean, I think the, you can't help, but where you're from and you know, those are, I th- I th- for me, it's all of those experiences. You know, I grew up in rural Louisiana and moved to Texas and okay. You start to pick up, different sensibilities of style and you know working at Saks and I was you know working around this is the time of like Perry Ellis was very popular Bill Robinson which is someone at George Armani was just starting out you mm-hmm. know uh, we had the Ralph Lauren shop you know and so working in that environment that sort of brought a different aesthetic you know learning about European design working at Saks and luxury and then moving to California and getting a whole nother spin on surfwear and mm-hmm. beach volleyball. And I, I lived on the beach with three guys and, you know, we just had a ball and, yeah. you know, living, you know, sort of a, yeah. yeah. You know, so you bring that and then I moved to New York city and that was a whole different sort of aesthetic. And then I moved to Boston, which preppy and East coast and, then I moved back to the South. So for me, as a Southerner, seeing the rest of the world through that lens and sort of putting it in a blender. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've spent 20 years of my career almost with dual citizenship between the South and New York. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I've it's that mix is what makes it what it is because I can have on... The same jacket I wear right over here to Rivertown Coffee in Florence, you know, or go over here to the concert and, you know, in Muscle Shoals or something. I'm wearing in New York City. I wear it in Paris, you know, wherever you It's not. Right. It's something that it's not just regional, you know, and I think fashion has become fashion is not regional anymore. There's too much information. There's too much. There's too many people traveling. My 15 year old son knows what's up in Tokyo, you know, and what the hot brands are. Interesting. That wasn't when we grew up, that wasn't the way it was, you know? And so I'm a little bit fashion illiterate. So, uh, well, you can easily get, you can easily (laughs) educate you, (laughs) but I think there's, I think at the root of it is, you know, um, it is all those things kind of mixing together together it makes it what it is it's um definitely it's got these you know pretty sturdy roots that are based in the south and that certainly you know with the denim and those sort of workwear elements and you know but then there's 
there's definitely influences are very street from New York. And, you know, there's I've some seen, things that feel almost surf related from California that sort of come in as well. And you weave in um, sort of imagery of, I guess, pelicans with the Louisiana roots and Yellowhammer with Alabama roots. Yeah. Into your there's definitely design. a little um, tigers, a little LSU. mascots yeah. and uh, design elements that pop up that, yeah, they're very personal, you know, that we weave into the the pieces in different ways and sure. not always on the it's not always something you may see either it could be something you know we really try to make a lot of things where you won't even notice it till you get it home you know it may be inside of a pocket or it may be something inside the jacket you didn't know was there or it may be even a a design line element that might relate back to something mm-hmm. that we we try to so there's definitely little call outs that you know, we kind of put into every piece that we make. When you relaunched in 2004, you launched with three stores, Dallas, Houston, and Florence. Is that right? Correct. Uh, how many stores do you have now? We have, we have 12 stores now. Okay. And primarily in the Southeast? I think. Primarily in the Southeast. We have two in New York. Okay. We have one in Chicago. We have one in Georgetown. Okay. So those are sort of our... Georgetown, Washington, D.C. George, George okay. Yes, Georgetown, D.C., um, but when we look for stores, and it um, doesn't always work this way, but my philosophy is always you're not just opening a store for commerce. There's, um, yes, of course, you want to do business or not in there. It's not a nonprofit. But so for me, you want to do something for the community. So if we're opening that store in Chicago, Okay, we're not on Oak Street or we're we're not on, you know, Michigan Avenue. We couldn't probably afford to be there and I'm not sure we'd want to be there, but so we opened up in a part of town that was sort of developing. Mm-hmm. on uh, West Randolph Street, which is where a lot of restaurants are going in there. But it had the feeling and the vibe of like when we opened in New York, which was on the Bowery, which was the same thing. It was a transitioning from what the Bowery used to be to gentrifying somewhat. But yeah. it was just being part of that, being part of something that sort of helped renew that area. It was important to me. It makes it feel more substantial. And I think it's also endearing to the local community. Did Looks that like go you into did your something. decision to base uh, the business in Florence this time? I, first of all, I thought it was real. Yeah. Secondly, when we did it, I thought it was, uh, you know, it's a unique story. Mm-hmm. I felt like, you know, I, I also felt like I could still be a part of the fashion industry while not being centered in New York. So it was a little bit of a risk, but I was fortunate enough to have enough contacts and enough kind of going on or, you know, that it had had done within that industry that it opened the door. You know, it may, not, may be a little harder with the door didn't open, but I was very fortunate the door opened and was able to kind of use it to say, hey, come to Alabama. I want you to come down here and visit us. Let's let us show you what we're about. And that was a good move. And that because it was it was refreshing, you know, yeah. it was no one else was really doing it. So it, it kind of made it unique in that way. And you do your um, runway shows in Florence each year, is that we right? Have. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We have done some here. Some, I mean, we do some, some in New York. Yeah. and But we have kind of... Sp- but we have done done some here, and then we'll invite you know the editors here to to review the show versus us going to New York. And again, it's kind of refreshing. They like to get out and see things, and it's good for the community. And it just feels good, you know. It feels it feels right to me. 
Coming up after the break, we'll talk more about Billy's views on the South, Alabama's fraught history with cotton, and one of the South's biggest parties every year. But I've, I've seen hearts and minds change by people coming in from the outside and blending with people that are local here that you may not ever have a chance to like meet up on the street anywhere else but in this situation. Hey, I just want to take a quick minute and tell you about our presenting sponsor, the Alabama Institute for Deaf and Blind. This is a cause that's near and dear to me because my brother was born profoundly deaf. AIDB is the nation's most comprehensive education and service program for children and adults who are deaf, blind, and multi-disabled. Serving over 26,000 Alabamians each year, AIDB is transforming lives beyond expectations by refusing to let adversity limit any individual's potential. To find out more about AIDB's K-12 schools, outreach in public schools around the state, and its network of regional centers, visit AIDB.org. So 10 years ago, <laughs> you launched the Billy Reed Shindig, which I guess is part of that mentality of bringing people from the world down to Alabama. And it's kind of become a who's who of the South every year, it seems like. Um, you know, you've had Frank Stitt and John Currents, award-winning chefs. You've had award-winning bands perform, like the Alabama Shakes and Jason Isbell, and then obviously Florence's own John Paul White in the Civil Wars. Mm-hmm. How did the shindig start, and did you anticipate it growing into what it is now? We did not anticipate it <laughs> yeah. growing into what it is now. <laughs> that is for sure. We didn't have a plan. Yeah. I, I, it's uh, <laughs> right or wrong. It definitely evolved to where it is now. It started kind of the conversation we're just having. It was an idea to bring people. Um, I'm, I'm a huge music lover. I knew a little bit about the Muscle Shoals history when we've, you know, when I married my wife and I first came here. But once I moved here and I really started to learn more about it and research more, and it was just a situation where I was good. Man, people need to know about this. At the time, the movie wasn't yeah. out or any of that. So. Documentary that came out. Yeah. So we, I said, we got to bring people down here. Let's bring them down here. Let's take them over to the, the studios and, you know, have them in there. Let's play the records and then talk about the history of the music and, you know, sort of like creating the movie through a, uh, you know, presentation. Experience. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, we had, we cooked for them. I mean, the first one we cooked in my house. I mean, so the first one did literally we're cooking, you know, shrimp and grits from, you know, a bunch of New Yorkers. Then we take them out on the lake and we show them the collection, obviously. And, you know, there is a fashion part of it and just kind of, you know, inform them of what we're doing. And that was the first one. And what happened was the people that came down, just we've, they were such a great mouthpiece and they were able to like, you know, this was New York, you know, started showing up New York Times, Wall Street Journal, you know, all of these great publications are, you know, writing about us and writing about the town and a little bit about the history. And so we said, hey, we should do that again. That was great. So the next year comes around and we did another one. We kind of added, you know, new things to it. And before you know it, it was a situation where, hey, we can't do this at our house anymore. We can't, you know, just got too big you know we, we added started adding the music part to it and you know. how many people came this last year how was your 10th um, shindig right? it, I, I'm not sure the the total amount I do know I think there's a there's a 1200 hotel rooms in Florence and every single one of them was sold out wow. so I know that 
we sell out the, all the hotels within. Does the local community attend as well? That's the coolest thing about it to me over the years is I've really seen this community evolve progressively. It's still a conservative Southern town. I'm not sure. going to pretend that it's not, but I've, I've seen hearts and minds change by people coming in from the outside and blending with people that are local here that you may not ever have a chance to like meet up on the street anywhere else, but in this situation and you watch them come together, break bread together, you know, have, have drinks and hang out and listen to music. And, you know, before you know it, spiritually people are changed somewhat by it. I I mean, that might be, you know, some, well, that's Utopia. kind of the reputation <laughs> that Schultz has always had, right? I mean, you know, like has, making music in the yeah, Motown it, era and all of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If we, as you see the documentary, um, you know, even back in some of the, the worst days of our state, mm-hmm. you know, you had some of the most interesting things happening musically and yeah. it was yeah people it was you know it was it was mixed you know and it's like people are getting together and you know it's like it wasn't again it's not to to take light of anything it was horrific everything else that was happening but you did have this little aces here that was there were some cool things kind of happening from that and it's a little bit of a hopefully a little bit of a guiding light that people can go to and go hey you know we can music brings people together you know it just always has music food art mm-hmm. are things that that really break down those barriers to me that's something we really do try to you know hope hopefully is a byproduct of some somewhat of shindig in some ways on some of your uh, promotional materials for it it says shindig and those who have experienced it has and will continue to serve as champions of the movement redefining southern what does the movement redefining southern mean to you if you're not from the south and let's say you've never been to the south and you live in i don't uh, buffalo new york i don't know anywhere up north and you you might your opinion of the south might be sitting on a picnic blanket it may be hee-haw yeah that may be your opinion of the South because that's the only exposure you've had to it. Or, you know, it might be, oh, wow, New Orleans is cool. Man, right. I love that place. Man, the music that comes out of the South is great. Yeah. Or it might be Bull Connor. Sure. You know, you don't know what their perception of the South is. You know, it, it, there's so many visions of what that can be. It's like when people go to New York, it's like, oh, New Yorkers are rude. Oh, my God. I can't. I don't want to go up there. Everybody's rude. It's like, man, it's like the uh, people in New York are pretty nice for the most part. Yeah. You know, you get a few. There's good and bad folks everywhere. Sure. So so I think bringing it down and trying to show a difference, like trying to show the cultural side of it, you know, and like, hey, look at the music that's been made here. Look at the food that we can make here. Look at these interesting artists and people that make things and craft things and you know what they're actually and they're good people you know and they're intelligent people and Mm -hmm. they're contributing that's what i think redefining the south is somewhat not trying to it's not really maybe redefining it's maybe just trying to give people another look at what they may think it is because anytime you see a movie typically if somebody's racist they're going to have a southern accent right and that ain't always the case i've been to all over this world, I can tell you, people in Italy are some of the most racist people I've ever been around. Yeah. You know? So don't tell me it's just in the South. I've been to Columbus, Ohio, and heard things I've never heard anywhere near my house before. Yeah, sure. It's everywhere. But unfortunately, it's defined as the South. And so I hope we can somehow 
change that a little yeah. bit, change that perception and stand for something different. Well, and when you put all of these minds, you know, in one place, um, it seems to have led to some interesting collaborations. I mean, I, mean, I know that you have produced hats for the Southern Foodways Alliance, and yeah. one of your shirts was, it's called the John T shirt, which I assume yes. is John T Edge. Yeah. Uh, they, it is. It's Southern Foodways Alliance. Dear friend. Uh, dear friend. So how did that friendship come about, you and John T? Very organically and not planned as most things. Of course, <laughs> there's yeah. A lot of things that's happened. Yeah, yeah. I definitely, it's, uh, there's a theme here. We had this shop here in Florence and um, my friend Robert Roush, who's a fantastic photographer locally, brought some friends over from Atlanta and... My friend, now Angie Mosier, said, man, I love the store. I love everything that's going on in here. Um, you know, we're serving food in the store. We get, you know, it's it was a, it was in a house. The first store was in an old house. It was like my mom's mm-hmm. store. Mm-hmm. So we were able to create that hospitality situation. And she goes, you just got to meet this. got to meet my friend, John T. You got to meet him. You're going to love him. He's going to love this. And, and John T came over, met John T. We, you know had a bromance immediately and <laughs> and we I said hey I'd love to any anything we can do for y'all and it's like yeah we need you know some merchandising t-shirts hats and it's like oh maybe we'd love to get involved and then they they came over and we hosted I was one of the hosts on a field trip with these SFA field trips that they had um for Southern Foodways and mm-hmm. and so, we've just been with them now for I guess we've been working with them for 12 years now on different projects. And he's kind of built his, I mean, his career around studying, you know, the history, I mean, figuratively and literally where Southern food comes from. You know, like in yes. Terms of, I, I'm curious if you take that approach to fashion, you know, I mean, obviously Alabama and the deep South have a, mm-hmm. uh, long history in cotton uh, yeah, and, sure. yeah. and you know, the, the cotton that came out of here picked sure. by slaves fueled, I mean, kind of the rise of the textile industry yeah, no globally. Doubt. Yeah. Is that something that you think about in your, you know, when, when you are producing your clothing mm-hmm. is that, you know, where does your, where do your materials come from? Is, sure. is that, do you think about, I guess, uh, textile ways in the same way that your friend John T thinks about food ways. Yes and no. I mean, I guess, um, just because the processes are, are different. Right. But it's easier many, to grow your own food than just to make your own clothes. Yeah, oh my God. Sure. We've, we've tried to grow our own cotton. That's, yeah. uh, it's really tough. Yeah. Got to tell you. But in, in some ways, yes. I mean, cotton is, is something, I mean, if you're in, certainly being from our region, you know, it's a fabric of choice. I mean, people, it's the, you know, it's the fabric of our lives. It's, it's the cotton, sure. yeah. it's, it's the advertising says it's a little bit true in some ways. So we definitely use a lot of cotton, but we, I mean, we're developing textiles all over the world and, mm-hmm. and it's just the way things are set up now in the United States. There's no way we can make our collection. There aren't the places to go make the fabrics we need to make really? here. There's, Why is that? NAFTA lineage of like, you know, the Italians and the French have been doing, you know, making jacquarded silk textile. There's, there's nobody that does that on any sort of scale in the United States, even in some cases, not even possible. So we have to look for the world to make the rest of the products. So we start with the mentality of like, can we make that in the United States? I start there. And in many cases, like, yeah, no problem. Here's how we're going to do it. 
there's a lot of logistics to it and trying to pull it all together. We will do what we can to try to make that work. And in some cases, it's just not possible because it's not even here. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have to go someplace else or a situation where it may be here, but the quality is not where it needs to be. Interesting. It's like I can get a better quality over here. It's not really about a price as much as can it be done to what we're trying to do. Yeah. And does it, it's, 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 it's the manufacturing, that whole curation of that is just a big game, big jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. That you're constantly trying to make fit. Is there a tension, I guess, that I mean, that you think about in running a luxury brand from one of the country's poorest states? You know, obviously, uh, you have jackets that cost more than some Alabamians make in a week. And obviously, fashion's not for everybody. I mean, not it's everybody not. wants that. And yes. so there's nothing wrong with being a luxury brand. Yeah. I'm just curious if you think about it. You know, I never thought about it like doing it in Alabama in that perspective. We're dealing in a very small market. It doesn't, it's, it's what I've been doing, you know, so it's like, uh, I have to, that's, that's, your that's, yeah, that's what yeah. we've been selling. And that's what I like working on. I love working on putting the work into a garment that is that luxury garment. It doesn't mean I wouldn't know how to go, Hey, let's go strip this down. Let's go take this to Vietnam. Let's go make 10,000 of these and let's go sell it for the jacket for 40 bucks. Sure. Okay. Yeah. That could do that. But I, I personally don't have the business model to do that. I, I'm not, I wouldn't know how to go do that. I can, I know how to go make, put everything in the world to go make something as best as I can make it. And I know where to go make it. I know how to go make it and who to go make it with and do that. And that's going to come out at a certain price <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, because it's all the work that goes right. in it. It's, it's, um, I remember we're, when, we're not like arbitrarily making up prices to go, you know what? I need that jacket to be 1600 bucks. I can't wait for it to be 1600 bucks. I'm going to try to make it as cheap as I can. Sure. It just doesn't work that way. And what, what I've come to realize is that this, this little store down here in Florence is one of our best stores. So, you know, there are people that do have that appreciation that do have those means. Sure. It's not like we're trying to exclude anyone. It's just kind of what, it's what I know how to do. You know, yeah. it's like if you were a chef and that's if you worked on, you know, this sort of uh, you know, that right. <laughs> little, right little yeah. yeah. And that's what you do. That's what he does. You know, yeah. he's not trying to go, you know, he's not trying to go make fast food. Yeah. So I'm not trying to make fast fashion, you know, yeah. same, same kind of way. Um, and it's not for everybody. And that probably never will be. So I remember when. Um Kanye West signed with Adidas. He said he was going to make, you know, a luxury fashion for everyone. And I think everything that he makes is still coming out at thousand oh, dollars. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just the, this, yeah, the hype and demand of it. Yeah. In 2010, you won another CFDA award and you were named GQ's best menswear designer, best new menswear designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in 2012, something really cool happened where uh, James Bond wore one of your jackets in Skyfall. Yes. Uh, how did that come about? Not planned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We had a phone call that came into the customer service and it was from a stylist from a movie. And they said it was for James Bond, the movie. We, We didn't really understand what all that entailed at the time. And she goes, we, we have the actor here. His name is Daniel Craig. And he has two of your jackets. He bought two of them in your store. And he wears them all the time and we're filming the movie and he wants to wear these jackets in the movie. 
It's and they said, but we need nineteen size mediums and we need eleven size large wow. of the jacket. Do you have them? We're like, I doubt it. I think we, <laughs> I think we made forty total when we made it the first time. We're not making like big units here, and so we scrambled and said, yeah, this can be important. So we we were able to track down the fabric. We got in touch with the manufacturer. Anyway, we were able to make these jackets. It took several, took a couple of months, but we did it. We got it to them. We didn't know if it was what was going to happen. And then, lo and behold, the movie comes out, and it's like he's in the movie in this coat, and it's he's in the coat for a long time in the movie. I mean, it was yeah, it's it was, like so this, it was the James a, Bond coat. Yeah, and we had called the coat the Bond peacoat, oh, really? not for James Bond because our store in New York was on Bond Street. Oh, that's so funny. we. That's how it got its name, that's oddly enough. Serendipity. And I don't know. I, he loved the coat. I don't think that's why I bought it, but anyway. Yeah. Maybe that's why I bought it. Brilliant marketing. Yeah, right, right, right. Because <laughs> yeah. well, then, I mean, people go out and they want to yeah. buy the Bond yeah, Peacoat and they yeah, buy it. Was, yeah. yeah, totally unintentional. It's just crazy. Um, then we had uh, we had an, someone that interned with us. We had just sort of brought on full time. His hand, he was very energetic, handling the social media and the whole thing. And the, the coat came out, and before you know it, somehow he was able to get in these chat rooms and things where people were where there are people obsessed with what James Bond wears, mm-hmm. and it's a whole. It's a thing. There's always like the Breitling commercials and the Aston Martin and everything. Yeah, people want to buy that stuff. There are hundreds of thousands of people all over the world uh, that follow this and they want the items. So the minute it came that we had the coat, man. You had needed a lot more than 40. I think 35 countries. Wow. Of people started emails like, how can I get the coat? How can I get the coat? Well, we didn't really have again we didn't have the scale of the coat so we sold what we could and then we just had a waiting list and it took us 18 months just to get catch up on the waiting list because it, it kept building you know mm-hmm. we'd sell it and then the, and we'd have to sell more it's a good problem to have but it really it just took off in, in a crazy way and then Q wore one of your coats in Spectre. But that one yeah. probably was planned, right? If you had success with Skyfall. Well, we knew that, yeah, we knew that was, uh, he didn't it didn't have quite the effect of yeah, Daniel Nobody Craig. wants the Q quote. Yeah, nobody wants Q. Yeah, they want the good guy. And this is obviously not an exhaustive list, but I, I mean, I know your clothing has been worn by Reese Witherspoon, Idris Elba, Chris Hemsworth. So, I mean, you know, it's got to be kind of cool when the God of Thunder is wearing <laughs> some of your clothes. Uh, do you sell directly to the celebrities I in mean, many cases yeah. uh, that usually we we don't really target a lot of people say hey go send them a box of clothes yeah just over time learned it's better if they like it first you know if they like something and then they buy something it's like hey here's an opportunity maybe we can dress them for their next photo shoot or their red carpet appearance or something so that's been kind of the best approach is to kind of let it happen naturally mm-hmm. and it's then you go wow they posted something like Scarlett Johansson bought some sunglasses and then wore them to a, you know, the women's march and here's like well yeah. there she is right there in the glasses like wow that's, that's awesome cool. you know and that they're out buying things and it gives you sort of an opportunity to build a relationship more naturally which yeah. 
in the end is going to be better. You know, we're not out trying to buy sure. people's uh, services for that. Do you design um, all of the clothes yourself, or how? Well, I have a, we have a team. Okay. I have a team here. I mean, I'm I'm very hands on with them. We really work it from a team perspective. You you want to give people some freedom, you know, and and try to teach them and coach them, and you know, there's definitely. Yeah, I can't take myself out of that part of it. It's what I enjoy and probably where I can offer the most help, you know, to the company. We're working on product 15 months from now. Really? So, okay, like, so we're working on spring, summer. Our, really, some of our next things is really trying to – there's been a lot of talk about retail, and everyone talks about the experience. It's been so overused. I mean, that's kind of what we started in the beginning was we wanted that experience, just – you know, that hospitality side of things. And um, in some of our shops, like in New Orleans, it's in a, our stores in an old house. We have a kitchen. We have mm-hmm. chefs come in and cook. We have a beautiful chef's kitchen downstairs here in Florence. We started, you know. So what we really want to try to do is open shops that um, are a little more engage you in multiple ways, food, um, hospitality, home, um, interior. The next few shops that we're opening will kind of incorporate a lot of that. We're opening in Birmingham and oh, really? uh, Pepper Place okay. coming up this late spring, early summer, where we're going to kind of experiment with a different concept of bringing in some of these elements of interior hospitality. We'll have, you know, working with a chef to open a restaurant in the space. Who's and the chef? Can't say that can't just say yet. I, but I, I could be, make some guesses. Um, but but we, we have some good friends there. We're trying to f- work through some of that stuff and get some, it'd be, we're very excited about it. Look forward to finalizing some of that stuff, but, and kind of make creating sort of a modular space that um, it's a huge open space. It looks like an airplane hangar in there almost, but where we can sort of convert the space to live events. Cool. If we wanted to have a runway show there, we can move things around. If we wanted to have a, a concert in the space, we could, you know, so really kind of create, put the hospitality on steroids. And then obviously, you know, for people like me and some of our other listeners, you know, that aren't necessarily fashion forward, but want to... Um, you know, want to support Alabama businesses and things sure. like that. What are some easy steps people can take to be more fashionable? Go to BillyReed.com. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it, there's, man, the choices out there are, I mean, you have so many choices to buy clothing. You got your, and you can all do it on your phone. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, so it's, it's, I think your first choice is you got to know what, know yourself, know what you're comfortable wearing. Some guys, you know, want to get rid of everything and start over. It's like, well, yeah, you can do that, but what, what, what are you really comfortable wearing? You know, and, and know what you want, and then try to. To me, I prefer quality over quantity. You know, get those key pieces. Like you, you know, you may be wearing a navy blazer that's too long for you, too big for you, and are too tight for you. Whatever that might be, it's like let's get you a really nice one that fits you well that you can wear with everything mm-hmm. you know a little kind of a more european approach to their closets you know people in europe for the most part their houses are not giant i mean they live in small spaces so they're small closets but many of them have beautiful wardrobes and they're not extensive they just have the right things yeah so it's focusing on those things that you can use is kind of the same we talked earlier about like luxury you can use you know and, and not just something you sit and look at so get get something you 
you know you're going to wear that really fits you well and looks great on you. That's always a good starting point. And if you do go to billyreed.com, you can sign up for his newsletter uh, and it'll get you information on on his products as well as the shindig. Oh, we'll feed you tons of emails, I'm sure. You you do. I signed up for it ahead of this interview. I can can attest to that. You know, I don't really understand that world that much, but I think it's, I guess it's part of the game a little bit. But yeah, um, you can definitely... Definitely do that. So well, thank you for uh, taking the time to chat with us no, today. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap, folks. Thanks again for listening. After we recorded this interview, Billy Reed announced that this year's Shindig would feature performances by Margot Price, The Raconteurs, and others. Tickets are now available at www.billyreed.com. This episode was produced and hosted by yours truly. It was edited by Reckon Radio producer Amy Yerkinen. Our theme song, Be Reconstructed, was produced by Sub Pop Records and is written and performed by Alabama's own Lee Baines III and The Glory Fires. You can find more of their music at www.theglorifiers.com. If you like this episode, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 